Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Bees Academy's podcast. I'm Barbara Williams. And I'm Pete Sterling. And how are you today? I am doing well. I am really well. Are you feeling sparky? I'm feeling very sparky. How about yourself? Oh, that's the uh, situation normal around here. Sparky. Uh, yeah, so what are we going to talk about today, I think? Today we're going to talk about imagination. And what about imagination is on your mind? Imagination, is it learned or is it intrinsic? If I'm going to go out on a limb, I'm going to say intrinsic. I'm going to say it's something that you, you just are born with and you lose over time. Oh, you're out there on that limb. That limb's very shaky. Have you ever heard about practiced imagination? No. Tell me about practiced imagination. Uh Practiced imagination is for individuals who don't have that intrinsic imagination. You know, um, like painters. You know, I've tried to paint. Uh, Sometimes it comes out okay and sometimes it doesn't. But that old added of just practice and practice until you get it to where you think that it looks pretty good. Um, you think about that guy, Bob Ross, who actually does all the uh, paintings and he paints. I think yeah. he paints intrinsic. But I, I saw a documentary uh, about a week or so ago about this guy and his son. And he taught his son how to be creative and to paint creatively. So I would say that is what I would refer to as practiced creativity or imagination. So was the was Bob Ross, of course we, we all remember Bob Ross from when we were kids on PBS. And so are you, are you saying that he was practicing the mental imagery that so he was conjuring up his, his images in his mind? Of course. Through practice? It's, it's things, landscapes he remembered, uh, landscapes that he saw, landscapes that he imagined, you know, would look a certain way. For instance, when you read a story to a child and you're describing certain scenery and you ask them to imagine what that would look like, that is a practiced imagination. Yeah, I think this is actually working on me right now. I think even as you were talking, I was starting to imagine more ways of practicing imagination. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I think it's a good point. I think what you're saying is, is really a good point because <laughs> you can be like, you, you can definitely talk to a kid about asking, like, about describing for themselves, like, what, you know, the woods around Little Red Riding Hood were like, or or what the boxcar and the boxcar children would be like, or what it would be like to live in a boxcar. I don't know. I, I liked that story when I was a kid. but Well, there are lots of stories. Uh, you just talked about Little Red Riding Hood and what the woods look like. I mean, for me, when I heard that story, when it was being read to me and they were describing the woods, I was just, I thought about great big trees and a really dark forest and, you know, so many trees that you would get lost. I mean, those kind of things 
is what I used my imagination for. Uh, even I love the Vampire Diary stories. And even though I was not actually in Mystic Falls, I kind of imagined what Mystic Falls would be like. So that is what I'm talking about when I say practice imagination. Uh, some, some people have it intrinsic and they don't need to have it practiced because that's already there. But for the, the uh, people who need to practice their imagination, that can be quite a challenge. So I would say for adults to take themselves back to a time when they were actually kids and can remember what imagination felt like for them. And this is super important for a school too, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I read a, a study recently that or it was a poll of, of companies that are hiring people out of college right now. And the number one thing that they're looking for in new recruits is creativity and a high level of imagination. And it was the one thing they were finding, finding most lacking in the candidates that were applying for their jobs. And so it's um, evidence of a failing of our school systems to either, whether it's intrinsic or whether it's practiced, it's a failing of our school system to either cultivate that innate imaginative ability or, or, or help uh, unimaginative people develop an imagination. So either way, it's something we really need to focus on, and especially in the elementary school when you're you're being informative and entering into the new world. The new right. world being like junior high. <laughs> oh, that's a new world? <laughs> that's right. pretty new. Yeah. Uh, children hear plenty of stories when they're in elementary school, and, and we ask them, you know, to describe how they felt when they heard the story being told to them. Um, that creativity and imagination, they go hand in hand. When you tell a story to a child and you ask them to describe the story, uh, tell us how you felt when you heard this part of the story. Tell us how you felt when you heard that part of the story. I mean, for different children, you'll get completely different answers about, you know, I was frightened when I heard this part of the story, or I didn't think that this part of the story, um, you know, made me feel like I was part of the story, or just a lot of different answers. And when you hear a lot of different answers, you can hear the imagination of, you know, certain children. Certain children can really tell stories that will even get you to imagine you being part of the story. And other children don't know where to start with that imagination because um, either home doesn't you know, nurture that imagination and when they go to school, school has a very limited ability to nurture that imagination. So what should a school do to nurture that imagination or simply get out of the way and allow it to exist? Well, I think you, you hit upon that um, schools and the facilitators in those schools should um, put forth certain scenarios and then just step back and see how those 
scenarios will flourish in those children. See what type of imagination and creativity would come from just an episode of a story. You don't really have to give kids the whole story. You can give them an episode from the story and have them to create a story from that episode and see exactly what those students would create. Yeah, I think it's really nice. Yeah. My, um, I think my answer to that same question is to be very careful about how you respond to a student's response to the questions that you've been asking during this podcast. You've been giving many good examples of great questions and probative questions that kind of spark the imagination. And I think there's the other, the other side of that same coin is the way that the adults in the room treat the responses. And I, I think that whether we're aware of it or not, I think a lot of adults, teachers, aides, uh, parents, older brothers, grandparents, a lot of times respond by kind of writing off certain answers and rewarding other answers or and I, when I mean say writing off, I mean writing off as silly or, well, you know, that's not practical or that's not, um, that's not really realistic or that's not true or, you know, it's not real life. Anything like that, um, while at the same time, this, all the students are going to be witnessing the answers that are rewarded, which are often those that are based in reality as we know it. They're based in, in already pre-established truths that, um, that we've already understood basically signaling to the kids the right answers from the wrong answers when in reality all we're trying to do in certain areas is to cultivate that ability to think expansively. Yeah, we call it preemptive intervention. <laughs> and and what I mean <laughs> what I mean by that is that parents like the minority report <laughs> parents look at what kids create and they're oh no that that can't possibly be right you can't possibly have um, experienced that did you or you know make kids feel like oh no you should have gone in this direction that's what I mean about parents have to take themselves back to a point when they were kids and read a story from that perspective and see uh, what they would have come up with as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old. Um, just take one episode from a story and then have the parents write a story from the perspective of a six-year-old and, and see where that imagination and what type of creativity they would, they would take from that perspective of a child. Just the parents, but I mean, the, I think the teachers have a big role in this too. Well, I'm a teacher. I, I kind of live in that world of imagination <laughs> and uh, creativity. Well, you're a unique teacher. I mean, there's, I, I, that's, I think, one of the special things about you as a teacher. If I may toot your horn just for a second, but <laughs> I won't, I won't dwell on it. But I do think that that is something that's super important that teachers do as well. 
Because it's not so much about like when you're imagining things that come from a story or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I, whatever is realistic or unrealistic in that context really at the end of the day doesn't have a, it's not that important. But what is important, I think what I'm trying to, what I'm scratching at is that what is important is that you, that day when you are 30 and you're at a job that has a brand new problem and you're the person who has to, or one of the people who has to decide how you're going to fix this problem, but the problem's brand new. It's never been fixed before because it's never existed before. Then you don't have the benefit of all the experience of all the of all the people whose shoulders you're standing on. You have to be the one who can imagine something that is not realistic or at least wasn't realistic five minutes ago. And now this is realistically what you need to be able to do. So you need to be able to pull something out of the ether and make a reel out of it. Oh, yeah, all those and that's sci-fi what, movies. Well, right. I mean, exactly. Like, there there was a time when airplanes did not exist. And then people started imagining. First, they just started imagining what it would be like to fly. And they didn't imagine the airplane. But they were, what they wanted was they wanted to fly, as you do in your dreams sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that... People were flying in their dreams long before humans knew flight. Oh, I'm pretty sure they were. I mean, they were flying on the wings of birds. <laughs> they were flying on the. They were just, you know, fly. That take for example that that story, Peter Pan. There you go. A lot of kids read Peter Pan, and I'm sure they wondered how did they fly, you know. Well, didn't also the pirate ship fly? That's really a trick. Did the pirate ship really fly? <laughs> I don't know. That I might be a Disney thing. I remember the pirate thing. ship flying. I don't know, but... But know. I remember Wendy and her brothers going to Never Never Land, and they didn't walk there. They, oh, yeah, they no, actually, Tinker took her there. They actually flew there. Yeah, that's right. No, I, that totally, that's totally right. So that's, a, that's an imagination. Um... You know, someone's imagination, and they passed it on to children. And when children read that story, they read the story of Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, who could fly. And and that story, there's lots of imaginary things there. There are a lot of create, creative things in that story that if you just took an episode from that story and ask your students to write what they saw, what they feel, how would they handle some of the things that went on in that story, you'd be awfully surprised about some of the episodes that would have been rewritten for that story by those students. So when when does imagination die? Or... Is it is it at a certain age? Is it is it a, a yeah. an event? Is it an event in a, in a, a child's certain, life? Is that a certain age? Is it at a certain age? Yeah, which is based on based on 
Based on what? I mean, <laughs> school is involved what? in this. I mean, it's definitely school is involved. And I, th- I think there's a slow crushing of this imagination over the course of the 12 years yeah. between kindergarten and, and senior year. Yeah. Can you remember when you had an imaginary friend and you spoke to an imaginary friend? Uh, if you were 20 and talking to an imaginary friend, they'd like to have you committed somewhere because they would think that you were crazy. Yes. That that, that mm. is what kills imagination. You are not allowed to have that type of imaginary Right, but what's funny is that when you do go crazy, then they actually go have you talk to a, a therapist <laughs> for like $250 an hour. And or, <laughs> or, or you might end up in a yoga class chanting a mantra in a language you don't know. <laughs> so This is true. So... Were you actually even that crazy to begin with if you just would have held on to your imaginary friend? Question of the day. Yeah, and it would be interesting to see what some of our listeners would think about that. Uh, How would you gauge your imagination and your creativity as an adult now? And can you actually understand or realize when you actually stopped being imaginative and creative as an adult. And then I guess my, I guess, you know, I, since I don't like to be pinned down to one question of a day, I'm going to have two questions of the day. Second question <laughs> is, can you get that imagination back once you've, once you've stifled it or put it, put it down in the, in the bottom of your sock drawer? I would say it would be you would have some difficulty and you would have some challenges to doing that. I would think that if you were in theater, that would come a lot of e- a lot easier to you because if you were in theater, that's what they do. They want you to imagine yourself being someone else other than you are. And that also goes along with practicing being someone else other than yourself. So I would say individuals who are in theater, they don't lose that. That becomes a part of them, and it's easier for them to take themselves out of reality and become someone that they are not to play a part, to be someone in a imaginative environment. So those individuals continue to stay in that world of imagination and creativity. That's all actors are, that's all uh, drama majors are, is that they practice constantly to be creative and imaginative. I love that, and then we'll, we'll end on that for right now. I, um, our story for today is actually one that I wrote myself, and so the first original story on the Bees Academy podcast is one called The Fairy House, and we're going to, I'm going to read that for you now. Um, hopefully it ties in fairly well with what we've been talking about in terms of imagination, and with that, I will leave you to it the fairy house and we will see you next week and i hope you guys enjoy
Today I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened to me when I was a little kid. And this is one of those stories that's more true the more you believe it. And it was about a small, strange house that I used to go to. It wasn't far from my house, the one I lived in, that is. And it sat along a narrow dirt path in the woods on the way to an apple orchard that was on top of a hill. I used to walk up that hill from time to time to take apples from the tree on the back side of the orchard. And it was on those times that I would come across this strange house in the woods. I said before that this house sat along the path, but in a way that wasn't quite true. It was actually right on the path. So since the woods were really dense there, it was always tempting to just go through instead. The house had a warm feeling, like a house of a relative. So I felt welcome and always seemed to have an easy time finding my way around. But at the same time, I always felt I shouldn't hang out too long or disturb anything while I was there. After all, relatives don't really like it when you disturb their stuff. And so I figured whoever lived here wouldn't much like it either. Even if I found a door that was partly opened, I would try to slide through without touching it even a little bit. The path the house sat on led up to the orchard. So when you went through it to continue up the hill, you would want to make your way to the upstairs and to the top floor where you'd be able to exit on the backside onto the path and onto your way. The house wasn't big, but it did seem to have many rooms and different levels. I also might have made it sound a little simpler to move from the bottom level to the top level than it actually was. You might come to a stair that would lead to a room that had no other exit, but if you would open a window slightly and tap on the arm of a chair, you might find a passageway hidden under the cushion that you could use to slide into another part of the house. Like I said, this place was weird. Sometimes the chute might lead to an exit, but other times you might just find yourself in the laundry room in a pile of dirty clothes. You'd have to try to, the right combination of moves till you found the way to the back porch from where you could get back on the path up the hill. To make things even more complicated, you couldn't just memorize the different moves. Through the kitchen, up the stairs, tap the chair, lift the cushion, slide out to the porch. No, because the moves would be different every time. Sometimes the chair would be moved or a hallway that was there before would be blocked off and you would have to find your way through the maze of the place all over again. This house was not abandoned, at least not all of the time. They seemed really busy, so they weren't always there. But when they were there, they seemed friendly enough and would help you find your way out. In hindsight, maybe they were just politely showing me the door so that I would leave. Either way, I remember one young lady, for example, who was caring for her baby when I stumbled into the room. She didn't say anything that I can remember, but she gently pointed me to a cupboard where when I opened it, I found a stair that led directly to the roof, and from there I was back on the path up the hill. At the time, when I was young, all of this seemed perfectly normal. I had not yet grown used to the way things tend to be in the world. 
These days I would never enter a house like that if I came upon it, no matter how welcoming it seemed. And even if I did enter, which I never would do, I'd be scared I might get stuck there or get lost. I probably would walk all the way around the hill rather than trespass there or just turn back instead. As I look back now, something strange would happen each time I went into the house on the hill. The house would feel a little bit smaller and a little bit more cramped every time. And it would be harder to find which way was which. The last time I went to the house on the hill, I found myself there with a friend that I had offered to take to the orchard beyond the hill. I wasn't thinking much about the house because, to me, it was the only way to get where we were going. I told him to follow me because I knew the way through. So we went through the entrance and started to move through the rooms. It felt really cramped and I was stumbling more than ever before. It started out fine as we passed through the kitchen and through the first hall. We found a ladder and went up to the second level. But something was wrong. The cupboard on the second floor that opened to the roof wasn't there. There didn't appear to be any other way to go. No way out. We started to look for a secret exit or anything that would lead us out of the house. We tapped on the furniture and lifted pillows. We banged on the floorboards and peeked out the windows, but nothing seemed to help. I tried to reassure my friend that the good people of the house would find us and show us the way out. And that's actually what did happen. After waiting a while and watching out the window as the rain started to patter off the roof, a man came up from a ladder that we didn't know was there. I could have sworn we had looked everywhere. He was a funny little man in a purple suit and long red hair. I knew this guy somehow. His name was Ward. I was relieved to see him because I hoped he would show us the exit to the path up the hill. But he was angry and he snapped. What are you doing? Why are you here? I replied, Ward, it's me. We're trying to find the path that leads up the hill. Oh yes, I have seen you before. But don't you know you shouldn't be here anymore? You can follow me, he continued. I'll show you out. And he did. His mood softened as he led us through halls that were wider than the ones that had led us to where we had gotten stuck. Then down a stair where we found a mudroom filled with tiny boots of the people who lived there. Ward showed us to the door and told us to go, and we did. But when we got outside, we realized we were back where we had started, out front, not on the upside of the house. I turned around quickly and yelled back, Ward, we wanted to find the upside of the house and the path that's there. It was too late. He had slammed the door behind us and left. I looked, but I couldn't even see the door well enough to knock on it and call him back. I was relieved to be out of the house. I was disappointed we had never made it to the secret path up the hill or to the orchard beyond. I felt somewhat alone in the woods that no longer welcomed me now that I was grown. But I didn't say any of this. I looked at my friend with a shrug and we went home. I didn't go back to the house on the hill for many, many years. If I'm honest, I've never actually seen it again if, after that day. But I did go looking for it once years later. I found the path that leads up the hill and followed it through the woods. But things looked different to me. I had grown so much that things seemed smaller and thicker. I arrived as far as I thought the old house would be, but didn't see it anywhere. I came to the end of the path, as I should have, but the only thing I could see 
was a large rock outcropping that was surrounded on all sides by a massive briar patch. I knew the old house must be hidden behind the briars, so I poked a little. I peeked from different angles and tried to press myself in to get a closer look. Eventually I got tired of prodding the prickly bush and decided to turn home. I still miss the old house sometimes and I miss seeing the young lady and Ward. I wonder, maybe if I hadn't broken all the rules by bringing a guest or talking so loudly or moving their stuff around, would I have been able to find my own way out or even still find the house today? It seemed easy when I was little to move from room to room and slip in and slide out. And I feel bad for offending the good people of the old house on the hill. It would be nice, I think, if I could find them so we could work this whole thing out. But then again, maybe it's not for the big people, and only for the littles to see what the good people are doing when they're knocking about. The End So that was the story of the fairy house. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed writing it for this podcast. This is the Bees Academy podcast. I'm Pete Sterling. We were with Barbara Williams. And we hope that you join us again next week for another discussion and another story. And if you'd like to get a hold of us in the meantime, you can do so at beesacademy at gmail.com. That's B-E-A-S at gmail.com or beastacademy.org or the same at Facebook or Instagram. So, until next week, we hope you have a great time and we will speak to you soon.